0: Cal Muniz grew up in a place that's as rural as it gets. He lived 15 miles outside Phillipsburg, Montana. Population, 923.
1: I went to the only high school around, of course, and my graduating class was 11
0: people. Cal takes a lot of pride in being from Southwest Montana. For more than a century, his family has lived on the same plot of land in the shadows of the Anaconda-Pintler mountain range. It's as beautiful as you might imagine. Sun-soaked hills, lush vegetation, acres of open meadows. It's a landscape painter's paradise.
1: Those views are just what I grew up with. There's such a strong attachment to that landscape and what it signifies to me. I think that's a central part of who I am.
0: Cal had a quintessentially rural upbringing. His family worked in logging, ranching, and mining. He spent lots of time in the wilderness. He learned to love fishing, hunting, and hiking. And growing up, he also learned that people who lived in cities like Missoula nearby or Seattle and Denver much farther away were just different.
1: Well, first of all, there was a lot of mockery, I would say. You know, it came to cities um, somewhat a degree of pity. I grew up with, uh, you know, people saying things like, I can't imagine living in a place like that. You know, like, how do people live? boxed in like that so close to one another.
0: Cal's dad and grandpa referred to the people there as slickers. And slickers were looked down upon for being alienated from nature. Cal also had a sense of what people in urban and suburban communities called people like him, who lived far away from cities.
1: Simplistic, backward, provincial, all of those sorts of things. You know, people in cities do not understand how we live, and because they don't understand how we live, they look down on us.
0: Political scientists have a term for the animosity that Cal is describing, place-based resentment. There's a long history of people from urban and rural areas feeling disconnected from, and in some cases, hostile toward each other.
2: We're here to talk about city versus country. This is the original love-hate relationship in America that has literally shaped every state.
0: For a long time after its founding, America was mostly rural, with a thriving agrarian economy. And from the start, there were power struggles over what parts of the country would get resources. These arguments were summarized in a rap battle from a musical you may have heard of, with Thomas Jefferson taking up the agrarian cause. In Virginia, we plant seeds in the ground we create, you just want to move our money around. And Alexander Hamilton pushing for cities as the center of power we create keep ranting. we know who's really doing the planting in many ways hamilton got his wish in the 19th and 20th centuries the us became much more urban with people moving in mass from rural areas to cities the cultural clashes between city and country continued to intensify these clashes are played for laughs in the 1991 film city slickers featuring billy crystal and jack palance aka mitch and Curly. Hi, Curly. Kill anyone today?
3: They ain't over yet. Stampede! Stampede!
0: City folk. In the non-fiction world, antipathy between urban and rural America plays out all the time on cable television.
1: The ...credulous boomer rube demo that backs Donald Trump. Donald Trump's a smart one, and they're, oh, y'all, y'all elitists
0: are dumb. <laughs> <laughs> you el- you elitists, with your geography and your maps? and your spelling, <laughs> no in other countries, sipping your latte. <laughs> resentment has grown as political polarization has risen, and the places we live are increasingly filled with people who think and vote like us. Since the 2016 election, there's been a lot of focus on our country's geographic divisions. There's a shorthand for this place-based resentment the age of a growing urban-rural divide, the United States' new political front line, it's the rural-urban divide.
3: Economics and population shifts are widening the political divide between urban and rural areas in much of the country, and it could have a big impact on this year's elections.
0: I'm Elia Powers, and here's the first thing that you should know about me. I'm a slicker, squarely on the urban side of the urban-rural divide. I grew up in Seattle and live in Washington, D.C. now, and I've spent my whole life in cities. I pay close attention to politics, and after the 2016 election, I did what a lot of us urban liberals did to try to understand rural Americans who didn't vote the way we did. I looked at polling data to learn about their views, read news profiles to get a sense of their perspectives, and did what seemed to be the required reading on the topic of working-class rural Americans, J.D. Vance's hillbilly elegy. The one thing I didn't do was speak to anyone directly who lives in rural America about politics generally and Donald Trump's victory specifically. Because, and I know I'm not alone here, I just didn't really know anyone who lived there. And still, I thought I had a pretty good handle on the urban-rural divide. I'd always considered it a proxy for Blue America versus Red America, the divide we're probably all most familiar with. But I've come to realize that's a simplistic and incomplete way of looking at things. In this first episode, I'll share what I've learned from speaking to experts and people from rural communities about the urban-rural divide. I'll try to answer some fundamental questions. What causes the division? Why is it getting more pronounced? Why do we resent people who don't live in the kind of places we do? But I don't just want to focus on the problems. I want to examine some solutions. As you may have noticed, this podcast doesn't have the word divide or division in the title. Not because I want to ignore the widening gulf between rural and urban communities, but because not enough attention is paid to how we can bridge the divide. This podcast is called Areas of Agreement, and it'll focus on how people from urban and rural communities can build relationships, find common ground, and take on issues that impact everyone. In this and future episodes, I'll report on how one nonpartisan organization called Urban Rural Action is helping people across the country work together across divides. And I'm not a detached observer in this process. Over the next few months, I'll be taking part in an urban rural action program called Uniting for Action America. It's an online initiative that helps people increase understanding of different perspectives, strengthen collaboration skills, and work on projects to improve their communities. And in the spirit of full disclosure, the executive director of urban rural action, Joe Bubman, is a friend of mine from way back. We went to college together, and Joe is also a slicker, though I'm pretty sure he would never describe himself that way. He grew up in Los Angeles and has lived in other major US cities and spent time abroad. Joe has a really interesting background. He spent several years working on international conflict through Mercy Corp. It's an organization that responds to humanitarian disasters and advances peace in places where there's lots of violent conflict. Joe and many others in his former line of work came to a startling realization in recent years.
2: What has become increasingly apparent to a lot of people who have worked on conflict in places like East Africa, West Africa, Southeast Asia, Central America is that a lot of the dynamics that exist in those areas exist in the United States as well.
0: The dynamics he's referring to include misinformation, polarization, widening economic inequality, divisive rhetoric and marginalization of ethnic groups.
2: And there are these potential triggers whether it's an election or whether it's the killing of George Floyd that can potentially unleash a lot of uh, violent unrest in our country. Joe firmly believes that some of the approaches used overseas
0: can be applied in the U.S. to help advance peace and prevent unrest. Those approaches, helping people across geographic, political, cultural, and racial divides get to know each other, find areas of agreement, and work together on initiatives, they're central to the mission of urban-rural action.
2: Our theory of change, like why are we doing what we're doing, is that if you can bring together people to learn from one another, build relationships, and take action together in pursuit of a shared goal, that you will increase levels of trust that can prevent an escalation of violence in our country when there are triggers, whether it's around the election or whether it's around other provocative events.
0: Joe describes urban-rural action as a peace-building organization that's trying to prevent state-sponsored and intercommunal violence. That may sound extreme, but Joe sees the divisions in our country as an existential threat.
2: If we have this increasing hostility, if we continue to view people who live in different types of communities, who have different political views as sort of the other and as the enemy in some sense, then we're really not gonna be able to solve any of the societal issues that we're facing.
0: So to recap, there's a clear problem, deep divisions on social issues, and there are these events, some that we know are coming, like elections, and others that we don't know when to plan for, like police shootings that trigger violence. And it's noteworthy that Joe decided that the best way to tackle deep systemic problems in our country is by taking on the urban-rural divide. There are so many divisions he could have focused on. Why this one in particular? In part, Joe says, it's because there are people who live in communities that are immensely different, but only miles apart, who never cross paths.
2: As I see it, one of the challenges is that we spend much too much time online with people who are similar to us and not enough time in person with people who are different from us. And because of that proximity between urban and rural, we think that there's an opportunity to bring together people for relationship building and collaboration on issues.
0: And when they come together, there are lots of differences to address.
2: There's a difference in culture. There's a difference in political leanings. There's a difference in the levels of racial, religious, and ethnic diversity, the levels of foreign-born residents. I mean, it just seems like one of the biggest fault lines in our country.
0: That word, fault lines, it came up again when I asked Cal about the geographic divisions in our country.
1: Urban-rural is one of the most prominent fault lines in American politics, um, second only in my view, to race.
0: Cal knows a lot about the urban-rural divide. You already heard that he's a proud Montanan, and he spent the last several years living in a more urban setting, a quintessential liberal college town, Charlottesville, Virginia. What really makes Cal an expert on this topic is that he recently became Dr. Muniz. He's a newly minted PhD, a postdoctoral researcher at Johns Hopkins University, who studies how people's connection to where they live influences their political behavior. Dr. Muniz, I'll stick with Cal, he can geek out on the topic of place-based identity. Our conversation got pretty wonky, and you'll hear some of that shortly. But first I asked Cal to explain some of the differences between urban and rural communities in layman's terms. Here's what he said.
1: Rural areas are wider, older, more religious, less educated. Urban areas are the opposite of all of those things.
0: And while we're at it, let's define some terms. What exactly constitutes an urban or rural area? I never knew the answer to that. And there's no universally agreed-upon definition. But here's one from the National Center for Health Statistics. Urban counties, and there are 68 of them, they're located in U.S. metro areas with at least a million people. Nearly a third of all Americans live in these urban areas. There are more rural counties, nearly 2,000 of them, but they're way smaller. The average population is about 17,000. And far fewer people, only 14% of Americans, live there. And here's the thing. A lot of people feel very connected to where they live, whether it's an urban or rural community. You may know lots of people who move around the country for work or play, but a lot of Americans aren't very transient. Nearly half live in or near the community where they grew up. And sure, you can hate where you're from or be indifferent to it, but a lot of people love and identify strongly with their hometown or region. That's the essence of place identity. Cal says the strongest predictor of place identity is how long you've lived somewhere. A recent Pew Research Center study found that 63% of rural residents have lived in the same place for more than a decade, compared to only 45% of urban residents. So it makes sense that in a lot of places, rural identity is strong. If you watch campaign ads from Senate or House candidates in rural states, you'll often hear politicians trying to tap into this identity. Look around Montana and you'll see John Tester is catching on. Maybe it's because John Tester is a third generation farmer. This early advertisement from Montana's Democratic Senator focuses on his deep roots in the state and shows a bunch of people getting Tester's trademark buzz cut.
1: I'm John Tester and I approve this message. I approve the haircut, too.
0: (laughs) Tester always looks more like a rancher than a Washington politician in his ads. And he frequently highlights the differences between Montana values and big city values.
1: These guys, the New York billionaire Koch brothers they're not from Montana. And their attacks on John Tester just aren't true. John Tester, Montana true.
0: Lots of political ads on the state and local level feature this kind of messaging. And there's a reason for this. Place is one of the oldest, most concrete ways of sorting people into groups. You're either from an urban area or you're not. Cal says some of the other ways of dividing people are more abstract, more recent, and require more sophisticated levels of social construction.
1: Whereas something like place, it's just, you know, I live here, this is the environment that I'm in, and, you know, these are the people who are around me. Like, that's sort of like your first in-group in a way.
0: Here's where our conversation started to get a little wonky. But the basic idea is pretty simple. We all hold multiple social identities. I'm male, white, liberal, upper middle class, and, depending on how you define it, about to enter middle age, gulp. Which of my identities are activated at any given moment depends on context. I'm the oldest possible millennial. Yep, millennials are about to enter middle age. And if you come at me with some tired criticism of millennials as entitled and lazy, My age or generational identity will be activated. As in, I'll get defensive and come right back at you. That's social identity theory in a nutshell. There are in-groups, what we identify as, in this case for me, the millennial generation. And there are out-groups, okay, boomer. That's what we don't identify as, the other. The in-group serves an important role,
1: it gives you a sense of belonging, but it also gives you a sense of
0: distinctiveness,
1: right? Because your in-group is defined as much by what it is as what it's not.
0: Social identity theory tells us that in-group members will try to distance themselves from out-group members by pointing out their flaws and vilifying them, all to enhance their own sense of self. Remember the ad you just heard from John Tester pitting New York elites, the out-group, against true Montanans, the in-group? Or Cal telling the story about how people in his rural community, the in-group, saw people from urban areas, the out-group, as disconnected from nature. That animosity, it's a sign of place-based resentment, a term I introduced at the beginning of the episode. This resentment, a lot of it has to do with the pervasive feeling that people who live somewhere else are inherently different. They don't understand your way of life. Most Americans say people who live in the same type of community as they do generally share their values. But people who live in other types of communities, that's a different story. Pew found that nearly 6 in 10 rural residents say their values are different from people in urban areas. And just over half of urban residents had the same observation. People who don't share your values, it can be hard to respect them.
1: And that's what we're talking about when we're talking about the urban-rural divide. People you know, whose urban identity is very important to them or their rural identity and who come to form grievances on the basis of place, grievances that are fundamentally geographic, well, those map on very clearly to the partisan landscape, right? And because of that sort of social sorting process, that contributes to polarization.
0: What Cal's saying here, that geographic grievances map onto the partisan landscape, it's a crucial point. Social sorting, the term he used, refers to the phenomenon of people choosing to live near others who share their political and cultural values, and who vote like they do. It's why, when you look at an electoral map of red and blue counties, they're increasingly clustered together—blue in coastal areas and in cities scattered throughout the country, and a sea of red most everywhere else—but that hasn't always been the case. Kyle says until the mid-1990s, just knowing that someone lived in a rural or urban community wouldn't tell you much about their party affiliation. There were plenty of rural Democrats and Republicans who lived in urban areas. In the decades since, however, as social sorting and partisanship has increased, where someone lives has become a very reliable indicator of their party affiliation and who they'll vote for. The 2016 presidential election results illustrate that. Hillary Clinton beat Donald Trump resoundingly in urban areas, 59 to 35 percent, according to Pew. Suburban and exurban areas were a mixed bag, and Trump outperformed expectations in small towns and rural areas. He claimed 62 percent of the votes there, to Hillary Clinton's 34 percent. Some political scientists, when they're interpreting these results, they focus their attention on the composition of urban and rural communities, the differences in age, race, education, and income. They don't necessarily view the results as a sign that people increasingly identify by their urbanness or ruralness. But Cal says it's a mistake to discount place identity.
1: Those are themselves distinct social identities, and you have to account for that within your model, or you're potentially going to be missing something.
0: Cal's research shows that people who live in rural areas have significantly higher levels of place resentment than people in urban and suburban areas. Cal says it's often a feeling among rural Americans that they're doing worse than urban Americans.
1: Resentment fundamentally is just ill will that you harbor toward other people because you perceive them as you know, having benefits that you don't have that they don't deserve to have over you.
0: Pew's survey bears this out. People in rural areas, on average, make nearly $50,000, nearly $15,000 more than people in rural areas. Most adults in rural areas say they don't have enough income to lead the kind of life they want, and don't expect to in the future. Another key data point, 7 in 10 rural residents say their communities receive less than their fair share of federal dollars. Cal says people in rural areas commonly feel slighted by how the government distributes resources. Another related complaint is that politicians don't listen to their needs. And the third major driver of place-based resentment among rural Americans, a feeling that their values and way of life aren't respected by people in power and by institutions. People in urban areas don't typically have the same complaints about their values being denigrated but they do commonly feel that tax money disproportionately goes to rural Americans, even though they don't contribute as much to the system. And urban Americans often resent that their votes aren't worth as much in the electoral college system as rural votes. There's often resentment over politicians spending the majority of their time in quote-unquote real America, a term many urban Americans hate. So what we have is two groups, urban and rural residents, both having distinct and in some cases quite valid reasons to resent the other side. For all the reasons I just laid out, it's a huge challenge to bridge this divide. Cal says increasing dialogue from people on both sides is part of the solution, but research shows that increasing contact between groups doesn't always have the desired effects. For this type of an initiative to work, both sides have to be working together on an issue that affects both communities. That's exactly what Urban Rural Action sets out to do. How do they do it? And how has it worked so far? That's coming up after this.
2: Hey everyone, welcome to Uniting
0: for Action America. Hi. Um, With this welcome message, Uniting for Action America kicked off on Zoom in early September. Joe was MC. He had a huge smile and a lot of enthusiasm.
2: And I'm thrilled that this group of 30 plus people from across the country has come together
0: Those 30-plus people, their backgrounds are pretty diverse in terms of race, age, political affiliation. And they're from a mixture of urban and rural communities.
2: We've got a couple folks in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, some folks on the East Coast, Boston, Midwest, Chicago, California, Maryland, all across the United States. This is fantastic.
0: Every few weeks, participants in the program gather on Zoom. Much of the time is spent in breakout rooms, with groups formed around topics like economy, education, food, race, and media. I'm on the media team. These small groups are theoretically at least a microcosm of the larger group. They're made up of people from urban and rural areas, and in my group at least, differences in political views and media diets. Like all groups, we'll be choosing a specific issue to tackle. There are no parameters around the topic we choose, no agenda from urban-rural action. There's a lot on our plate. It's a national program, and so many problems that need addressing. Other programs that Urban Rural Action runs are smaller in geographic scope. They're at the state level, with urban and rural residents deciding what issues in their communities to explore. A program in Maryland, for instance, has projects on education, the economy, and systemic racism. Other state programs have predetermined topics, like this one that wrapped up in Pennsylvania about criminal justice reform.
3: We're a group of 27 community members split between Philadelphia and Adams County with direct or indirect experience with a criminal justice system that needs to change.
0: This program focused on consensus building on how to reduce incarceration rates. They brought in experts on criminal justice reform and heard from juvenile lifers who were eventually released.
3: They put us in trying to force us to tell. They us
0: Teams formed around issues like keeping juveniles out of adult facilities, in the excessive cost of basic goods in jail commissary. In a video recap of the program, several participants described the conversations about these issues as eye-opening.
3: I never had the opportunity to explore this.
0: I spoke to one participant, Chad Colley, who lives in Adams County. He said he was deeply affected by being in the program
3: you end up with this dynamic that's very life-altering for the participants, I think. I know it has been for me. You know, we begin to think differently, and we begin to look for those places where, okay, well, we know that this subject is going to lead to uh, anger because this person thinks a certain way. So we kind of divert, and we look for points of unity versus, you know, going into a conversation where um, we're just looking to, have everybody uh, align with us when the conversation is over.
0: Before Chad got involved in urban-rural action, he held several leadership positions in the local Republican committee. Adams County is only a few hours away from Philadelphia, but culturally and politically, it couldn't be more different.
3: Adams County is a lot more agrarian. We tend to think more along the lines of self-reliance. You know, there's a lot of guns in, in, in Adams County.
0: And there are a lot of conservatives. Not surprisingly, when Chad was involved in local politics, there was a lot of animosity between the parties, and he was turned off by the divisive rhetoric. Chad ended up leaving the Republican committee. He still holds a lot of conservative views, but he started having more constructive conversations with Democrats, and he came to a realization.
3: We're oftentimes not as divided as we think we are if we get into a deeper conversation, and and we choose our subjects wisely as well.
0: Choosing subjects wisely in this context means selecting issues that affect both rural and urban communities. Take guns. Chad says rather than framing conversations around gun control, a politically charged phrase, there will be more constructive debate if it's framed around reducing gun violence.
3: Because if the conversation starts as gun control, it's going to look very different in Philadelphia compared to Adams County. But if we find a point of unity is how can we reduce gun violence then we have a, a lot greater opportunity of success if we choose our topics wisely.
0: Joe says it's hard to build consensus around gun policy at the state level. But if instead you define the problem as how to reduce gun-related violence at the local level, that's something people can agree on even if they don't agree on policy. The question Joe always wants participants in the program to think about is where can we make meaningful contributions? even if we have different views. Take the issue of criminal justice reform around mass incarceration.
2: You're not going to affect systemic change in a three-month program with six community members, but could you do some work where local businesses begin hiring more formerly incarcerated people, for example, um, as a result of the work that your group is doing? Maybe. And that's something that I think regardless of ideological views, you might be able to come together.
0: Having constructive conversations across difference is a step toward meaningful action, but Joe is well aware that dialogue isn't enough.
2: I don't believe that civility is the answer to our country's problems. You you hear some people say that, and I think it's a way of upholding systems of oppression and inequities in our country. Conversations are helpful, Uh, but they're not the solution. They can lay the groundwork for systemic change.
0: That's why urban rural action programs ask teams to analyze systemic challenges and do something about them. Teams often have an initiative that's public facing, like creating a petition, running a training, or launching a social media campaign. Participants in the criminal justice program made public their beliefs about how to reform the system.
2: We believe that the presumption of innocence is a fundamental right
0: and that pre-trial detention and cash bail should be the exception and not the rule. The idea is to engage the broader community, though it's not about advocacy or legislative lobbying. And it's not about persuading the other side that they're wrong. Chad knows no matter how many constructive conversations take place, people living in different areas are gonna have different perspectives.
3: I think there's a number of different topics that we could delve into to where we would think differently just because of where we live, just because of our zip code.
0: Chad says the goal is to get people to act in a way that's constructive.
3: Instead of being the person that that goes online and posts about those crazy people in Philadelphia or those people in Adams County, those rural people, we're able to really understand and encourage one another to, to grow in our communication skills.
0: How can people talk about divisive issues in a more constructive way? And what are some of the divisive issues that groups in urban rural action have addressed with some success? More on that in future episodes of Areas of Agreement.